Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, we have three central rungs to our writing manifesto. First, to help you write more. Second, to help you write better. And third, to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. How are you? It's so lovely to have you here with me today on the show. Today I've got a guest on the podcast. Um, It's the author Laura Dockrell and uh, she is a children's author. Um, I first encountered her as a poet and she's just put out a non-fiction book. I sort of, uh, I I always want to do these intros after I've recorded the chat and um, I uh, I never know quite how to. Sometimes I know how to do them. Sometimes it's like very clear, especially when I've got like a neuroscientist or something like that, and I just need to kind of give a little bit of background as to why they're on the show. Um, but um, yeah, I I just I I guess I, I don't don't want to ramble on too long. And also, um, I think I always if I've had it, Laura is an old friend of mine. I, I knew her from back when I was d- uh, doing performance poetry on the performance poetry scene and Laura came along and um, was amazing and uh, we were really good friends and so it's really been really nice to have a lovely chat with a, a dear dear friend, someone who I admire hugely as an artist and who I value very much as a friend who I haven't got round to speaking to in too long so that's the but what I don't want to do is, is kind of like we talk about you know the craft of creative writing but also her latest book is I think a book she never expected to to be writing and I w- would have never expected from her which is a non-fiction book called what have I done um about she became a a, a, a mother uh in the, in the last couple of years and uh it's a book about postpartum psychosis uh we we talk about this we you know we talk about her her children's book as well she wrote some great books she wrote um uh the darcy burdock series she wrote one called uh well series called uh lorelei about mermaid she wrote one called big bones um she's written some great for various ages um different children's books which are fantastic and I will put links to them in the show notes for today's show and we talk a lot about that and writing for children because you know as a parent myself it's an area I read loads of children's books at the moment and I genuinely love them and I well the ones that I enjoy I really appreciate and get as much out of them as my daughter Suki does I think and so I wanted to talk about that because it's not something I've ever attempted myself and obviously some of the challenges are the same as writing for adults and, and some of them, you know, when you're considering your audience, I, it's it's an area outside my expertise. So I'm always going to have a writer who is writing outside my wheelhouse, which to be fair is almost everyone I have on the show, even when they're writing fantasy. I'm like, how do we do, how do we do this? <laughs> Can you tell me? Because I sit down in front of my computer and I feel like a plonker, like I've done two novels I'm just a I am but a wee beginner and so there's there's nobody I have on this show that that I feel that I I feel is my junior in any way but um it's always particularly fun when they're doing something that is sort of beyond my ken because I feel like I get to sort of like 
sit at their feet and learn. So that was part part of um, what we talked about. But um, she she she's written this memoir about giving, you know, having this traumatic labour and what happened afterwards as she started to, you know, become mentally ill. And uh, she, you know, ended up becoming paranoid. She had delusions. She was hearing voices. And we talk about this and she ended up, um, you know, being taken away from her child and into a into a mental hospital, you know, not very long after giving birth. And we talk about the ways in which trying for children and pregnancy and childbirth and what comes after and the various things that can go wrong. Um, we don't talk about them very openly uh, in our society. You know, these things tend to be sort of kept to the kind of like best kind of like the message boards of forums of websites and all sort of whispered between people and, and not talked discussed openly we share you know on facebook we we, we share our pi- people share their pictures of their lovely babies and the birth has gone fine and all this and a lot of stuff gets kind of not talked about or hidden away or just for whatever reason people don't feel safe discussing it and and that goes for men as 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 well as uh, as women as well i think um obviously it directly affects uh, uh people who give birth more uh directly but the, the you know this affects whole families and it's all of us right uh, and so we talk about that and we talk about her experience and i think what i don't want to, what i was getting at is i don't want to preempt it all by going oh this was you know this it was an important chat because i i just want you know i worry that people like fold their arms and go well we'll see <laughs> we'll be the judge of that tim you know i, I don't want to um but um i really appreciated doing this talk with laura and um we both you could probably hear it on the recording but we both welled up at points (laughs) um so it was quite emotional and I think I was emotional just because um I was so glad to be speaking to my friend again after you know us both becoming parents and stuff just meant that for whatever reason we hadn't reconnected and I think it's your chance to hear you know in part an artist talk about you know creating poem we reminisce about the old days doing on the performance poetry circuit we talk about like audiences and writing something that you perform live and how that shapes your work and how that informs it to then writing for an audience of children and how you go about managing that so lots of like practical stuff and then you know we go into um laura's experience of um mental illness and uh you know, long-time listeners of the show will know that this is a subject close to my heart. And I think if you enjoyed the talk I had earlier this year with Byron Vincent um, about his experiences, um, then this is a good companion piece to that. Um, that's it, really. That's I, I just I I I hope you sort of like you know 
enjoy listening to this i'm sorry i've been away for so long i've been you know having my own experiences uh you know my own um challenges with depression and mental illness as i'm sure lots of people have um this year it's been a, a trying year for a lot of us and um yeah it's really good to be back i'm you know doing some things to hopefully um to hopefully get myself through it but it's really lovely and i've been loving all the emails i've been getting from people and stuff so i hope that this episode is useful and enriching for you um if you enjoyed the show and uh you want to uh help me keep the lights on you know cover my like hosting costs and the website and things like that then you can go to my um coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim claire again a link in the show notes and drop me a few spondules um that i really appreciated everyone who's been doing that and staying in touch um that's it really oh and if it was i guess it's coming up to christmas if you want a a gift for someone and you are short of ideas or you want to ask someone else for a gift for yourself then um feel free to consider um my novels the honors and the ice house uh kind of like gothic with a bit of weirdness thrown in um i think you might enjoy them and if you've got any if you've got any children in your life or younger people to buy for check out some of laura's uh books like either the first darcy burdock book or uh one of the lorelei ones or um she's got uh, for actually for covers a, a range of ages uh i think you will find some super super great stuff in there um and i'll put links in the show notes that's it i'm not going to ramble anymore um you know i would love to stay here and talk to you because i i love just saying hello uh but i'll just let you listen to the chat so this is me talking to laura dockrell i just wondered if you can remember like one of the first times that you told a story Oh my goodness, what a good question. I thought you were going to say when I met you, and I don't know why you were going to say that, and I was like, yeah, you have on yellow sunglasses. Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, I've had some great times with you, to be honest, Tim. No, I wasn't going to say that, but I was going to say that if you did ask me that question. No, uh, told a story. Well, I have been telling stories since I was really small, and it's like very much part of my identity and something I didn't think could be a job. So I felt like that wasn't a good enough currency. And I thought there was a gap between telling a story, I guess, to like a friend or a school, I guess, <clears throat> a lie, lying a lot. Mm. And then, um, getting away with it, it felt like to be an actual official author, you know, a writer, you had to be dead or an old man and to be published and you couldn't that was like a big gap between being somebody that loves stories to then that I guess it was like definitely a big part of like I only had one friend at school really properly at primary school a girl called Siobhan who's still one of my closest friends now and we would spend like all like just lived for play you know imagining at playtime so it would be like let's imagine and then that would be all of school was just built around um 
pretending you're somebody basically and the games would go on for years you know you'd be these characters as you'd go into them as soon as lunchtime or playtime began and you'd be that character for the entirety duration of the until you know obviously someone invites you to who wants to play or whatever the hell did they they used to do that at your school they did that at my school as well people start going around the, the the playground going who wants to play and then sometimes it's it you have to wait for the beat (laughs) <laughs> kiss chase yeah and then you join and and link the arm but the whole usually the whole of the break is spent who wants to play that there's no actual time for the game because it's intense because there's this like kind of like snowball of kids like slowly getting bigger and bigger <laughs> totally so that's kind of with it and then also my big sister so it was up to me all the time to be like to my brother and sister right it's the victorian days and you're both in a friggin' barn base <laughs> wrapped around your head and you're slaves and prisoners and i'm the mistress wow um, which was a lot of it yeah my dad's a great storyteller as well so i used to watch him like his art you know like you've met my dad probably because he'd come to quite a lot of the gigs and um sit at a pub table and just have people around him you know he tells stories of the punks and you know growing up and I, that's when i thought this is really freaking cool you know that's really interesting you should say that because I feel like when I talk to a lot of people whether they're like writers playwrights um poets or whatever they often have like a couple of permission I call them like permission figures in their life and I mean it's just somebody who they see and it's either like a mentor who says hey you can do this or it's someone that they see in their life doing it where they just go oh this is a this is a thing oh this is a thing and 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 so your dad was like one of those people who kind of like modeled it for you was there anyone else when you were growing up, like uh, either a teacher or an author that you particularly loved, where you were like, oh, oh, the, I get this is the thing I want to do? Well, to be totally honest, like, OK, going back, I mean, I can circle back, but definitely when I was finding out what I was doing when I first started, you know, speaking on, you know, out loud, you, you boys were massively inspiring for me, like you and I'm talking about you and Luke Wright and John Osborne Um you know, I never, I didn't, I, I'd seen John Cooper Clark a couple of times when I was younger. Or I was brought up on punk music. I loved rap music. You know, music has been massively inspiring to me, but that was music. So I was like, oh, that's music. There's John Cooper Clark, but he's the only one, the only sperm that's made it through. <laughs> um, and then there's no more space for us sort of thing. And then, um, what was it? Who was that thing that said Pam Ayers has eaten all the poetry pie or something like that? There was that. <laughs> there was that thing. It's like there's no. You know, I thought, oh, okay, those jobs are taken. So it's not really that. And so when I saw you guys, for example, I'm like, what? At 19, I was like, oh wow. Like, I don't. I don't even mean from a money angle. Just as a kind of art form, I that really opened my eyes. And I guess loving music and theatre and writing, performance poetry is such a perfect platform for all of those things. But. Your work was particularly what I what you did on stage was really interesting because it was like it would be comedy. You'd be going down this comedy road and then you could make us cry. You could just you can completely have the gear stick and shifting all the time. And that's what's really exciting because I didn't ever want to be, for example, a, a stand-up comic. That just feels too prescribed, and I don't like that pressure for the audience to feel like okay, we need to laugh like now. We need to physically respond with our bodies. Which with poetry you can do what you want, you know, and that's really exciting. But when I was younger, you know, I definitely, my writing was encouraged. The Brit school was really powerful for that. You know, that was, you could come into school saying that you're just, you know, belly dancing or hula hooping or whatever the hell you wanted to do. And they go, that's the thing. 
<laughs> so that felt really inspiring and and um but yeah being from school I've always been really lucky you know both my parents are self-employed work in the arts so I didn't ever feel that I was you know disappointing them in any way I felt like they would always let me they made me feel like my voice was important even if it was annoying <laughs> <laughs> that's that sounds really do you I suppose like having all those influences around you I suppose the only thing and I'm not trying to lead you down a path here but um I'm just thinking of my own experience as well that some people just grow up and they don't have anyone around them who's interested in doing arty stuff or at least not in any kind of career sense the flip side of that can be when you're surrounded by people who are doing it and you think this would be great and actually there's a bit of pressure because there's just inevitably going to be some people who are absolutely crushing it and so I just wondered how you sort of what there whether there were any downsides to being surrounded by you know people who even if they weren't working in exactly the same genre as you or whatever you just see people go doing really well and you go oh wait hang on am I yeah I think Brit school yeah I wasn't sure what you meant first because I think I yeah yeah definitely at Brit school um yeah, so at Brit School, you hi- kind of have uh, strands. So there's like music, theatre, you know, you've got all of them and they're kind of their banks and then they kind of cross-pollinate. So like that's where it gets really exciting where you theatre comes together with music or whatever and you can do projects together. But it, it actually, this school, it could be not, it could be different, but I actually remember feeling like all of the arts were treated equally across the board. And I feel like what I've learned from a from a Brit school kid, a, a kid that's come out of Brit school and has taken from it what we're meant to be dosed with, you, we, te- we treat all levels, you know, platforms of disciplines of art exactly the same. So a lighting person is like, that person's a sick lighting person. Like that person is a sick makeup artist. They, they made blood come out of a skirt with this pocket of blood out of plastic like they're sick so and that level you know that person can string your guitar or whatever that is actually kind of respect that we have learned there so I wouldn't say there's like a kind of levels of competition but that's in your when you're on this side of the desk or this side of the stage I think definitely when you're the audience it is hard to get your head around sometimes that you're um if you're not making work that is as commercial I suppose can you can you talk a little bit about how you made because I remember w- when we met like it was in on the performance poetry scene I remember starting out I saw you do a kind of combination it was really interesting actually you did a combination of kind of like character pieces where you were like taking on a voice and some like just like really sincere I guess kind of like uh, list poems and stuff where you just take a subject and you just kind of like run at it and you like go what's everything it's like a kind of it's like a fire hose of like ideas based around like one theme or something like that and I remember um I remember it being really amazing I don't want to get too lovey and just be like going oh just kind of but I, it, I, I remember it being really incredible and just like killing with audiences and I wonder just how you approached writing your poetry when you came to do it on stage because although we kind of think about performance poetry and it's kind of like oh you can do anything and stuff at some stage you've got to make a decision and I just wonder how you went from just being able it being a possibility to actually going oh I'm gonna I'm gonna write this piece and now I'm gonna take it in front of human beings and I'm gonna show it to those human beings 
and hope that they like it because that seems like for a lot of people that's a massive gap to jump right yeah and sometimes you do fall on your face um do you know i was just thinking when you're saying character yeah you mean like my letter to rolf harris that i went and had a continued career in children's being a children's author yeah that was do you know it's i think in like we were so heavily kind of taught at brit school the kind of the aim for me well what everyone wanted to do was to get into drama school that was like the thing you know for me i realized oh i don't want to go to drama school but i love this whatever this mess is i love the improvising i love the writing I love making, but I don't want to go up for a role of being the part of Juliet and stroking the fat king's head. Like, like that's not my aim. That's not where I see myself. I also <clears throat> am not inspired by... Um, I'm not competitive, so I don't like the idea of, like, being in a kind of lineup of other girls that look like me and going, oh, that, that's not... I'd rather just go, that's for you. You're so much better than me at that. <laughs> So I think learning the work is definitely where when it started getting interesting and exciting. And you'll know this as well. So actually, a lot of the writing was done with a dictaphone. I where I lived was like not close to any stations. So like we had about a 20 minute walk in South London where I lived with my mom. It was like a 20 minute walk to get anywhere. So I just carried a dictaphone and would talk into it for hours. And that's where a lot of it began and was formed. And so already I was trespassing that line between writing and performance. And I would learn the work in a sort of rhythm, I guess, from music. So where that kind of like anarchic, punky scratch, as you say, that fire hose image comes from is because I was all the time um, thinking about how this is going to work online, uh, online, out loud. You know, I'm thinking of like, uh, mixing like a kind of Sex Pistols mix of Carano, mix of Eminem, like Mother Goose, all blurred into a blender. Like, how is this going to stand up? Thinking about the theatrical element, thinking about the surprise, thinking about owning a space, also thinking economically, like, how can you pop up anywhere? You know, how can you transport your little mini theatre? to a back of a van okay that sounds like i'm being kidnapped <laughs> but like to a imagine kidnapping me straight away i'd start okay get yeah start my right out <laughs> yeah we've, okay yeah yeah she can get yeah we'll kidnap the wrong person no like how can you be how can you make cheap art just pop up how can you do old school storytelling appear you know how can you make that appear um it also comes from not having a very much money as a kid you know when we were small we didn't have much money and you know, being able to provide entertainment for free, you know, it, telling a story, that's like a currency that if you can understand the language or you can gauge that visual, then you've got performance. I guess, I guess like every, like every good, every successful performance poem has that kind of offer at the beginning where you kind of almost turn to the audience and say, who wants to play? And then you, and then you, and then you, and and then you like open up this little world, and then they can choose to jump in. And if they buy in, then you're like, okay, here's the game, and you you go through the poem and stuff. Absolutely love that, and I think there was there is a moment, isn't there, when you begin, where you you'll know this. Eight people, eighty people, eight hundred people. You've got a few eyes that look at you and they go, I'm with you. I know there's only six of us. You've lost the whole rest of the room and you're doing it for us. But I'm holding the dog. I'm holding the metal hat. 
I'm I'm in this with you. We're on the Monopoly board. Let's play. It's <laughs> like, oh, I can't wait for whoever to come on. And then you do it for them. I remember it was Ross, actually, Ross Sutherland, who said he'd give himself like uh, three good gigs in a row. If he didn't have three good gigs in a row, he'd stop. So he'd be like, okay, there's two. Um, so he'd be like, there's two bad gigs. If the third one's bad, I'm stopping. And then the third yeah. one would always be good. And it's, I mean, there is so many reasons to stop, but then there's so many reasons to just start again. Yeah, it's yeah that 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 little those people who are like little anchors through the audience that you're looking at. But you get that's the thing that I wonder if you. I'm not trying to. I realise a lot of my questions are like, do you find it difficult? When was it horrible? When I'm not trying to be negative, but like, how do you then? What you get when you do that is you write pieces and you get really good feedback. Like if people really enjoy it, you can't really come off stage and go, well, they hated that. Well, that was that was like if they enjoyed it, you know that they enjoyed it. So when you made when you started moving to writing um, books for the page, I wonder how you managed that suddenly, like your audience becoming invisible to you. Yeah, well, first of all, that's really good, actually. And actually, going back to your other point, there'd be moments, I think, in like your performance, my performance, Luke's performance, for example... I'm thinking of Cat Francois' performances where it 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 tilts, it teeters into grotesque. You know, you're just like, you're just doing this weird macabre thing, and it's almost or Kate Tempest. You know, Kate Tempest, you're just kind of purging. <laughs> you know, and it's like I don't care who's watching. It's like you're kind of vomiting in the street because you're really drunk and you just got to get it off your chest and sometimes it is that as well and actually there's so much beauty in that even if you don't know what the person's saying actually as i'm saying this the word beauty i chose i think i'm thinking of that poem where you're saying the word beauty with a dog oh, yeah which is just common to mind which is that's when i'm not gonna lie that's when you like just stood out to me as like this guy is unreal um that was a real that was a real thing as well that was like a real thing that i'd seen and i look back and i i look back and i i would i would handle that differently now because i think sometimes some of my stuff that i felt was like funny character stuff was punching down a little bit but it was genuinely like really sad actually like seeing an an old woman like at the at the balustrade of like a, a, of a of an old person's home with her little sort of her little dog um a lot, like a little chihuahua or something running into the road and it was called beauty and she was just shrieking beauty beauty somebody save my beauty but i feel really of course i'm not surprised she was upset like the dog was the dog was totally fine in the end and got saved and stuff but God, it's weird that it's kind of yeah, what yeah. we were doing as well wasn't it we were like sort of documenting what we were seeing like seeing stories and then like going listen to this one like yeah and then it was so I don't know I don't think it I don't think it was punching I think I don't I don't know I'm not saying that we're Louis through but we're kind of Louis through <laughs> but so when when you when you moved on to like doing that kind of thing you know t telling stories but doing it how do you do it when suddenly you haven't got I suppose you simultaneously haven't got the threat of the audience there the pressure but you also haven't got the safety net of the audience there you can't check in to go is this all right as you're doing it you're totally right like the audience is an immediate editor right so in front of you the i that's actually the hard bit isn't it when you're on stage and you realize something doesn't go down i'm not talking about a joke because i wouldn't call myself a joker but like when you just say something it doesn't feel right in your mouth it doesn't land right and you're as you're trying to remember your lines if you learn them off by heart or your place 
whilst also being really really self-conscious of yourself how you're standing how you're looking what the room someone might have left their snare on behind in the drum kit behind you that's sizzling in your head and then you're also editing as you're going won't do that again got to remember that's annoying that's a bit shit and so it's really a lot of work but that is also a gift because you know within moments they're not buying that or that needs to go um with this you don't you are hoping that something translates I guess that's the thing as well about going to school visits when you do children's books but the thing is you could read something out on out loud from your book and all the kids are like mm, that's not funny and you're like well it's now in print and that's the book so 9.99 please <laughs> not going to buy this book so great um so that is hard, yeah. And but I, I think my first book, Mistakes in the Background, that was ever published was just my performance poems put down into page, which actually was really weird because I thought in my brain our world had become so small and tight and cosy at that time. I was so sure of what I was doing that just because that relates to, you know, the 100 people that you know, doesn't it suddenly when your book's being, you know, mass produced and it's in the shops... They don't you can't sit with them and go now this is actually a sarcastic poem and this one's got a little funny voice attached to it and this has got because you can't you just got to let it go and hope you know it does the work for you so that's different can you can you when you've been writing for children and i suppose i it's it's always i always feel a bit weird sort of phrasing it like this because it sounds like i'm talking about it as this like tremendously exotic audience like we haven't all been children and no children and all those kind of things and you go how do you write for these strange aliens I know they're just people and we've all been them but at the same time I suppose you are with performance poetry you're kind of often writing a little bit for yourself and a little bit for your immediate peers and with when you're writing for an audience a bit younger than you you there there is something slightly different about that and I wonder how you I just wondered if you could talk about how when you've started writing for that audience you sort of whether you I don't maybe you didn't but whether how you thought about um how you were pitching it differently and how you were finding those voices yeah well the first time I actually tried to write for children I got it really wrong you know that's kind of what I what I always thought I'd end up doing was writing for children it's actually what the module that I studied at when I did creative writing and my degree that's the only kind of module I really actually took any um because even poetry just wasn't seeming to to study it wasn't seeming to connect with me it made me feel a bit stupid actually studying poetry like I didn't know and what I was doing and then when I started doing children's writing I tackled I struggled again actually at first because I thought it was kind of like okay I'm writing a children's book now blinky plonky <laughs> and I was like why isn't this translating and I had a few off meetings where it wasn't happening it was actually because of the performance poetry stuff that I got picked up to do children's writing because the work was so bombastic and larger than life and cartoon-esque that kids would just watch kids would just hang around and go this is and then I, I think, didn't you do the BBC Off by Heart as well? Did you do that? No, I don't. I don't think so. I might. I've, I've done a few things, so I can't remember, but I don't think I did. No. So there was a project called Off by Heart with the BBC, where we all had to learn a kids uh, a poem off by heart. I don't know if it was a kids poem or whatever it was, but I did Roll Dahl the Pig, and I started just performing that in my set because it was sometimes it was just oh, yeah, I remember a that. Yeah. good cover to do, and um, then then I think people just started thinking I was a children's performer but then I'd have some work that wasn't appropriate for kids I'd be like oh great now how do I balance this and we're just desperately trying to 
be a, it fit in a key that with a lock, right? And like an agent then at the time that said, um, Catherine Summerhays, that was like, you should do this, but do it like this. And then that's how it all sort of, and luckily it was somebody at Random House had seen me um, do adult work at festival and that's when she was like oh no no yeah you should but so basically what I'm saying is um, it makes sense right though if you think about the music that kids listen to like my son doesn't love nursery rhymes he's not like oh yeah play wheels on the bus that's such a banger like he wants to listen to queens of the stone age like everyone else like um, so that's I guess how I, how I started writing for children was just writing for myself without the swear words and telling <laughs> those like silly, funny stories that, and and let your editor be the one that says that's too much, that's too far, you know, that's not appropriate, or we've lost, they've lost you a bit there. That's the bit I think. Give them the full portion and all their love and attention. Don't patronise and not, you know, downwriting for them, because they can sniff you out straight away if you're a fraud or if you're holding something back. Yeah, I I, I think it, when you say that, it actually makes perfect sense to me because I'm perfectly capable of boring adults right like it's not like it's not like it's like oh what if i alienate these kids what if i write something boring or too wordy and it's like why do you think that's not a problem that you already have that's why like my editor steps in and says tim this is this is dull it's not it's not that's just that's just writing right like like we you just you just don't write a perfect first draft but what but what you can do and i think what you were sort of suggesting there is 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 that you don't go right now i'm going to climb inside the children's writer clown suit and like become this kind of like character who's writing for children and because you all it's like when you first try writing poetry right and you go i'm now a poet with a capital p and you start not actually being honest you start trying to like make everything a metaphor and it really tortured and you can't say anything simply because you you feel this pressure to well, you be just the isolate character. yourself don't you you isolate your you lose touch and, and it's so many times i've met um that's really interesting actually that's so i mean my brain is just like uh, yeah that's interesting because it's almost like okay how you think of like a poet it's like sort of the outsider that's surveying the situation solo right and it could be I'm thinking for some reason of a party think of a party that's the party and the poet is the person that you know flits between and lurks around and snapshots with their eyes and their memory and then regurgitates it in some abstract way and you think which bit of the party are they talking about is it real or is it imaginary but if the party's full of other poets and everyone's slipping and sliding in between each other the poet kind of then becomes the poet with the capital p and everyone loses themselves it's like the same with children's writers but they're the problem that we fall into in this world of children's authors if you don't hang out with any kids anymore so the poet's problem is if you hang out with too many poets yeah and the children's authors if you don't hang out with any children because you forget who you're writing for. So sometimes the, a children's author will have not have met a child for 30, 40 years, or they're, they're getting further, they're more successful maybe they're getting, they're getting further and further and further away from the kids. The, the queue lines have got barriers all around them and they're doing signing tables and they're not even looking at the children, they're just signing and they're handing the books back. Their own children might be 30, they're you know, years old themselves now. And then it's then you're in a scary position because you're like, you might drop the word like that slams. <laughs> the child is like, what are you talking about? And I think there's 
yeah, you keep your own youth bottled in yourself. You know, you've got that to refer to. But actually, the climate of like, there's so risky you could just uh, so risky that you can uh, annihilate yourself, alienate yourself immediately by just like trying to think you've got it, got the the child whisperer technique. Yeah, I, I guess, and I guess like a lot of stuff just it just has to come. I know this is going to sound so so cheesy but i suppose like if it just comes i always feel like the opposite of being a hack is like just writing anything from a place of love i just feel like if you do that then sure like an agent is going to have to step in and say this bit you know you lose the momentum a bit here sure an editor might step in and go i think we need a bit more explanation here all of that's true but i just don't think you can ever be completely inauthentic if you're writing about stuff that's important to you and it comes from a place of love right you know like i i just think about children's stories that have got have, have had legs that have like lasted a long time like suki's really into the moomins at the moment and you know Terve jansen it was writing about her family and the people she loved that i i think they're amazing and, and they're surprisingly dark in places as well they're comforting in others but you definitely get like the sense of the Finnish midsummer in all its glory, but also the Finnish winter with its like endless nights and r- r- de- there's genuine danger there. Yeah, and I was thinking when you first began of where the wild things are, which is so mm. simplistic, but again, so dark. And the reason why those books last is because that is the hand out of the author of putting a hand out to the child and the child is grabbing the other hand and that's the story that's being made. It's not... I'm drawing a big circle with all my hands and I'm taking over. It's like, no, no, you do the work too. And that's, you've nailed it. It's just about love, that sincerity. And when you're being, that's real generosity as a writer is when you're saying you fill in the gaps here. Um, And and it's, I think I just read this quote not long ago by Ernest Hemingway, who said, write cold, write, write, uh, I'll find it. But it's basically write drunk, edit sober right no something oh something like that's just me imposing my well what Ernest Hemingway was like I was like well he probably said something about alcohol no let me get it for you because it is really good um I've got it just not far away hold on I actually remembered it it's I can't find it but I remembered it right hard and clear about what hurts the most and that's it I, I think um like Ernest Hemingway gets a lot of flack right but I've read I read his book on um, his book Death in the Afternoon on bullfighting and it's so it's but like in the night it's like a historical book Um, and he talks about how horrible it is as well but it's um, it's really good and um, it's also what people forget is actually he's really funny and like he has a whole chapter taken over by an old lady who he just imagines coming up and starting berating him and he's just like, of course, madam. And then she takes over the narrative and she starts telling it. And she's asking him questions, which he's ans- answering. And he's really playful and really silly and really doesn't take himself to. And people think of him as being like, I'm sure in real life he was a bit of a horrible character. But his books, he's like, takes huge risks. Do you think um, sometimes Big Fish is just the old man in the sea? Yeah, totally. You're talking about the film, right? Like the watching it not longer because i've watched it i watch it quite a lot and then i was like this is just the old man in the sea just colored in 
think about that. Yeah, you know, um, I'm trying to remember the the name of the um, who's the who's the monologist. Um, oh, I can't. I'm, not, I, I'm I'm flaking on it now. The the monologist who watched Big Fish, and immediately went and he he decided he he was he'd had a car accident right and he it slightly changed his personality and he went to watch big fish and he went oh i see now that the purpose of life is you've got to have like a proper ending to it and he went and um jumped off a ferry and killed himself after watching the movie it's like it's no, I'm totally serious. It was like really intense. He, I, he'd had this car accident and had like a metal plate put in his head, and it had affected him. But his whole career is he does these, did these incredible monologues. Oh, um, one of them is called "Swimming to Cambodia." It's on YouTube if you ever want to see it. It's like he did did these incredible monologues where he'd sit at a table with his show notes and talk, and so he was obsessed with narrative and stories, and he he watched it and um you know he was he was not in a good place but he just decided oh that's um i i want to say i think i want to say his like his therapist was like oliver Sacks or something i might be i might be talking nonsense but um yeah and he um yeah he he he, he took his own life it's it was ah uh, spalding gray that's it oh my god i recognize that name it's really sad that because I feel like that film is so hopeful and yeah, me actually, too. yeah, that I I think that actually it shows that a story doesn't need a good ending, like actually, and the beauty of even if they aren't related, let's just pretend they are, of um, Ernest Heming of um, the Old Man in the Sea is it's like a really good lesson in stoicism and rationality, which you know there's like the idea that the person is if you don't have anything in a way you you can you you know it's like that idea of placing big demands can actually make you feel depressed it can give you anxiety to put too much expectation and pressure it's like that simplicity of that that experience is what it is and just let it be that and the acceptance of it um is a i mean i I should read that book again since i've been ill because i feel my whole outlook on that you know i was kind of raised to be that person that's like optimism positivity upbeat like everyone yeah 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 and I still do have that but it has changed so watching Big Fish again is different for me in an amazing way that I don't have to believe in the big ending I think of it now more as like um, Life of Pi (laughs) yeah where it's like a kind of philosophical thing where it's okay that it's the other way around I wonder if now we're getting into this like idea of stories being something that can help you through kind of like myth making whether they're true or not I I wonder if we can like talk about your latest book because I know loads of people who listen are going to want to read it but um I wonder if it's all right for us to talk about that because I was really interested and, and like you know as a parent and also as someone who has like struggled with his mental health a lot um it was really really interesting to me i must admit laura i was a bit ashamed that i had a feeling when i heard about what you'd been through that one of my first thoughts was well that doesn't sound like laura you know like as someone who's always been so positive as someone who had always been so in my eyes like really resilient 
as someone who I always felt like when we first knew each other, I was a, I was a mess. You know, like I, I haven't, you know, I have, I've been teetotal for eight and a half years now. But like at the time, like I felt like a lot of us just didn't have our lives together. And I felt like you were always someone who just seemed to like really you just seem to like in the nicest possible way like yourself like you were kind to yourself you know like you had it together um and but it was just always really admired you for that and always felt a bit sort of like not and and the reason I say I feel ashamed is because I don't think then it's like well you then don't get to be a person who has problems right like in my eyes it's just like oh no no that's like for that's like for people like me but not but not for Laura and I feel like that's actually really prejudiced and judgmental of me I realized immediately having had that thought like that's not and I just wonder if you could I wonder if you'd be able to sort of like uh, give us a bit of background about what the book's about and what of course well first of all like eight years I'm I'm 119 days sober (laughs) today congrats eight and a half years my god yeah, because you used to drink uh, spirits, didn't you? I remember. I was like, you think you're grown up, like with a Coke or something. Mick. I used to drink everything, Laura. <laughs> yeah, but yes, yeah, including spirits. Yes, definitely. I also am so sorry that you have suffered with your mental health. I did not know. I, like, again, I thought you were somebody that actually really liked themselves. And I didn't. When you're saying that, you know, you're messed for not getting your life together, all these things like. I don't think, didn't ever think that of you. And so when you're saying that happens to people like me and I I wasn't expecting, I thought we were going to talk about, I mean, I don't know how you can talk about this sort of stuff about books and writing with a friend anyway and not bleed into other things. I didn't think I was going to be feeling emotional on this basically, but I am probably because I'm talking to you and we haven't spoken since everything. I just think it's, you're just not no one's immune are you you just you think you, you're how stupid to think not stupid that's the wrong word like but how ignorant or naive to think you're a person that's going to get mentally unwell or you're not you know you're not exempt like it would be like me saying oh I, I can't get hit by a car I can't be attacked on the street you know there is nobody that has it any better and it's just how we live alongside it after or with it along with it once it does happen so um yeah so two and a half years ago it's not making me emotional by the way talking about this illness because like that's my everyday life now and actually it's healed me so much talking about it I thought talking about it was to like get things off your chest or I'm like oh no no it's not that it's connection and that in keeping it alive actually makes turns down the fear or the volume on the fear of it it's just emotional talking to you about it, I think. Um, so, yeah, two and a half years ago, I, I um, was had my had my first child and only child because I'm never doing that shit again. Um, my little boy, Jet, and I had a really traumatic, a lovely idyllic pregnancy and then a traumatic labour. But then again, whose labour isn't traumatic to some degree? Loads of loads of loads of people's isn't Laura. The day before um, Lisa went into labour, we were at the um, takeaway getting hot food because we thought that'd bring it on. Because we and, and and a woman trying to be actually really trying to just basically not shit us up. 
when do you know what she said when i gave birth it was just i've she said i've had worse period pains she said it was easy she said it was easy and she wasn't being like dismissive she was going look you just she just went you don't know but some people have it so for some people like it's not easy easy right it can't possibly be but some people definitely have it miles miles easy easier than other you know this as well but like i think it's like i can't remember the percentage but it's at least like one in ten women have symptoms of ptsd after giving birth like it's it just but there's a conspiracy of silence around it absolutely i think it's eight out of ten women struggle after having a baby eight out of ten and yet this is as you say conspiracy uh it's like it's like life's biggest conspiracy it's a trap basically that a universal secret I had a casserole of nonsense as a pregnant, as a labour, like everything that went possibly wrong could have gone wrong pretty much, you know, um, to the point where I, I was two weeks overdue, but it was undetected that Jet was actually small, so he was starving in my womb. So, like, for two weeks, my placenta had failed. So when he came out, he had, like, sh- baggy skin where he'd, like, starved. And then, so I thought it was going to be a big fat-prized pumpkin, you know, and he's actually was skeletal. So already, I guess the idea of this womb is meant to be like a kind of sanctuary for like growing and blossoming. It felt like mine was like this really cold dungeon where I already felt the kind of first seeds of guilt, which, you know, parent guilt is massive anyway, of um, that I'd let him down as a failure, all these kind of stuff. But, you know, just, just to say from the beginning, when I tell this, because always the thing that I don't like the most that people say to me when they found out I got ill is like, oh, you did, always did have a big imagination or, did you know. Did people say that, really? Wow. Ways, or like things like, even in my doctor's notes, it's written down, is a children's author, has a big imagination, as if I imagined myself to have psychosis. And it's like, I've, it's like I went through the teenage angsty poetry years wishing that my life was so hard to write my bitchy poetry about. Like, you can't, you can't bring on depression. And also, it's not glamorous, it's not cool, it's not romantic, and you, lead, you need need it at the very least when you've got a newborn to raise um so it wasn't it wasn't that you know I was I did have sleep deprivation but again with my illness sleep deprivation um isn't is a symptom of the illness it's not I didn't get unwell just because I didn't sleep you know which also at the time when I was unwell I believed that was my fault that I had lost this inability to sleep which I mean I'm someone that I I sleep anywhere I've fallen asleep watching Bjork before at Glastonbury standing up like I don't have a problem with that was that was that was that 2006 amazing gig i was an amazing gig i was there with ross yeah <laughs> um, and um so i'm not saying bjork was boring i was saying that's how much i don't have a problem sleeping and uh then basically yeah within uh, so i had an emergency c-section after various other forms of trying to give birth and um then was kept in a ward for a week if you've been to a maternity ward before they're like basically a carousel of hell where it's like you with sharing a floor boiling hot floor with eight other mini families that are trying to sort their shit out that, that you're there because something's gone wrong basically you can i mean you can you can often overhear screams right like screams you can overhear screams you can overhear crying you know the people opposite me had lost so this is when after the baby's born you know the person opposite me had had twins had lost a twin oh my god just intense and it's boiling and I, a rare side effect of the epidural is that uh, like a symptom is that you scratch lots 
So I was like scratching till I was bleeding. I'm vegetarian, but I was literally eating chicken carcasses, like naked anything that's being put in front of me. Someone rushes your curtain open one second to inject you in the thigh or bark information at you because you're holding the baby wrong. And all the while you're drugged up, you've not slept for like seven days, you're constipated, you're bleeding, you're homesick, you're grieving, you're confused. And then home very much became this like Walt Disney castle you know that's like when I get back to home everything will be okay but because Jet was so underweight um yeah underweight he had to wear this like woolen red hat called a red hat baby he was like a kind of livid scrunched up like goblin on a mission which was like feed me at all hours of all times at one point I fed him for 18 hours straight with like a 10 minute break and then for another five I mean, it's intense. I'm not telling you this to be like, wow, I'm being more like, how did nobody say, like, you need to sleep or what's going on here? Or anyway, now's not the time to bitch about the NHS, thank goodness. But when I came home, basically, I got that. I've not had a mental health problem before this up until this point. So there was a part of what you were saying about me just then really beautifully, but that you were right. You know, I also, as well as that, that idea of what you have of me is probably quite accurate purely because I'd never been stung before I didn't my parents broke up but I had never known proper pain or trauma I was really fortunate to have the teens like that so there was some truth in that I was pretty green and so yeah I did like myself because I didn't know that level of pain really um got that feeling when I got home that sort of beginning flickering you know like when you're watching London's Burning and Heartbeat on a Sunday night and it's school the next morning and you start being like maybe my parents will forget I exist and I won't have to go to bed or school the next hmm. day really small on the sofa just that kind of feeling like a tiny bit of like existential when you get back when you come back from a, out of the cinema at four o'clock on a Sunday and it's dark in winter and you're like oh what day is it Time, time has shifted. I remember once when I was in Beijing and I went and did a gig in an abandoned, in a, in a building that was on an abandoned fairground and I went in and it was April and when I came out it had snowed and everything was covered in snow and there was no reason to think it was going to snow beforehand and it was like we teleported and I was like, and I was like, I don't quite feel real. I don't I don't quite feel like I exist. I just kind of feel like I'm on a movie set. It's funny you're saying about the snow because it was um it was February and actually then this storm happened called Storm Emma which I've since researched. I'm not a weather person. But st- um this storm is was called like a it was called a sudden depression of a storm. Oh. I think it's so weird and outside was this snowy blizzard so going in anyway basically very quickly i felt that feeling hugo straight away went to sleep don't know how he absolutely did that just like nothing had happened and then i was just jet was just crying and i was like something's not right i like woke hugo up i was like i don't feel normal for a while i thought it was just the you know jet i thought it was what had happened you know the trauma um of the experience of the labor and the week in the ward but very quickly something else happened and i began to psychologically unravel very quickly um so my symptoms were um extreme anxiety racing thoughts uh, mania um insomnia um loss of appetite loss of concentration and then the, all the freaking dark shit you'd ever want so suicidal thoughts um um hearing voices delusions conspiracies paranoia um to the point where like, i fell into a deep a psychosis basically I've I've never experienced psychosis before and I just 
wondered if you could talk a tiny bit more. By the way, if anything of uh, this you don't want to go through, just say and tap out. And I am the opposite of Mother Goose. I'm Mother Loose. <laughs> so or Mother Noose. Um. So. Uh... I just mean I'm just because I suppose the thing that I always struggle with, and I always struggle with when I'm talking to people about my own mental illness, and or, to be honest, the thing that I struggle with when I'm not in a low position or whatever relating to myself sometimes because sometimes is like how you have how you relate to this experience while you're having it because you know you've lived in the world up to that point so you people I suppose the naive view is like you have a pretty idea good idea of how the world works and what is and isn't plausible and yet in that moment it doesn't feel like that and I wondered if you would be able to explain how you're thinking about it when you're in a psycho I'm glad you're asking me that because not enough people do and I think they're worried I think about that people are scared to listen to it and scared to understand it and it, it actually leaning into it learning about it trying to understand it not in an inter- uh, in an interrogational way like an F- F- FBI science way has been really healthy for me rather than a kind of self-blaming way it is just science um so yes um, okay, so, which, you know, I'm going to explain it, but I just want to say to everybody that I do have the power of words to explain myself. You know, I'm not an A-grade star, star student. I'm not super smart or academic, but I was explaining this to GPs every day, what I'll kind of try and do again now to you, and it still wasn't picked up. So I don't know how people are going about that don't use language every day to explain and express themselves are trying to do this so I mean it's it's really tough this is an epidemic in itself but um yes so when you're in psychosis I think for me it was I had seen a play when I was pregnant called Yerma an amazing play with Billy Piper starring in it who I've always loved Billy Piper absolute babe and one of Hugo's friends goes out with her it, the play covered some of the themes, so I don't want to give the play away because it's amazing, but um, it has a really traumatic, scary ending, and the themes in it were about pregnancy and trying to conceive. And I saw it when I was quite in the late stage of my pregnancy. When things started to go wrong, I just had this like voice, a bit like what my brain would do anyway when I write, because I use metaphors and similes, or I'm trying to connect anyway, just start going oh god like this is like that isn't that a bit weird how you just said you came out and it was snowing you know so it kind of starts with these little breadcrumbs where you start trying to join things up we also have a fig tree that was outside at our house and the fig tree there's a tree in the play and we have a tree and the tree lost all of its leaves and wasn't making any fruit it was february and there was this massive storm emma i'm there going why is the tree looking really like skeletal and naked and why is there no leaves on it just these little things start building up and then that for somehow like starts joining up with the idea of my womb you know kind of being empty and not being able to produce reading too many books and all the rest theater all that sort of stuff you start believing to make making these links but then I guess it's that larger question where in the same way that having a suicidal thought might begin with god I wish that train would just hit me or that car would just crash me crash into me does that count as a suicidal thought or not the same way when you hear a voice you know the voice was just me it was just out of my control so it was <clears throat> I was changing jet snappy and um I just heard something in my brain just be like I'm here basically and it almost 
uh, yeah, I like tried to go, okay, I like froze, I was like, okay, I've heard a voice. And then I was like, what do I do? The voice kind of acted as if we'd met before, which was really weird. And I think that was kind of my anxiety from like maybe past in my teenage years, which just went, I used to dare myself when I was a kid. Did you used to do that? Like, if I don't get down the bottom of the stairs, like, by the time this song finishes, I'm going to die or whatever. Yeah, 100%. 100% I would go, I, I would whisp, it would be whispering in my head that I've got to do exactly that. Otherwise, I was going to go to hell. Wow. Hell, okay. But I, I wasn't, like, a religious kid, just to be clear. Like, that was just, like, I. but that was the thing. Was my bed when I was younger, and I'd be like, I'm going to die today. Oh, okay, cool. Like, just to know. Or if I don't if I don't get across this traffic light before this stops beeping, but I don't walk across these free drains. Little superstitious that I now know yeah. superstitious thinking. It's like magical thinking. It's on an unhealthy, negative automatic thought. But I didn't know that at the time. And it just went with the growing pains of growing up. So all of that, I think, was just there. Um, and then... Um, yeah, and then I walked to the bathroom and it kind of came with me, this voice. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror. This is before I was hospitalised. And just seeing myself back, but my eyes just looked different. The, my pupils were just like super big. You can see when someone's got psychosis because you can see it in their eyes. When they say mental health is invisible, it's not fully invisible, I don't think. But um, <clears throat> the voice basically was like, teehee, cooey sort of thing. And I was like, oh, that's it. I've popped that's it I've cracked like so you were still so even in that moment you were still there was still you reacting it to it like presumably any of us would just going what the hell hopefully most people mostly if you catch it there's amazing teams and amazing effort and funding that goes into the intervention of psychosis because you have a strong sense of course as you say me in my case 31 years on the planet of a current you know sewage pipes running underneath me it's anchoring me back down going you know this isn't real Laura you know but it's a little bit like that that scene in Bond films where there's two glasses of whiskey and one's got poison in it and that person's sipping it but you've already pre-swapped the poison and then they know you've pre-swapped the poison so it goes round and round and it goes on forever it's like a yeah but maybe then this is the real world and that isn't the real world and then and, and it just goes on forever and ever and ever and because I've never had this experience before of how to deal with it or cope with it I didn't know how to live with it which many people can do and they're amazing when people say that people with mental illness are weak it's the opposite because it is daily lifting weights but I basically started following through a narrative because Hugo and I, my partner, have been best friends since we were 13, 14 years old. I believed we were part of this bigger story and my conspiracy. I was like, oh, we were meant to get to this point. We were meant to fall in love. We were meant to have a baby. And then that baby was meant to die. And I was meant to, you know, do something terrible to myself. And that's how the story was meant to go. But then I had this really rational logical part of myself that was like which I'm really proud of which was like I'm really scared I don't want that to follow out like that and I believe it's going to so I need to stop it in its tracks which basically is also essentially a suicidal thought but that one for me had logic behind it and rationality because it was like this is going to get really fucked up and dark so take control and agency right if you saw a person about to jump out of a really tall building you'd be like what are you doing don't kill yourself but if you knew that building was on fire you'd be like yeah jump oh i see yeah titanic so it's like you're trying to save yourself and that to me there is logic behind that in the same way that you know an animal might eat their young if they thought that their young was under danger you know in danger and that to me makes a bit of sense but 
it is a Rubik's cube and it's constantly switching and you don't know who to trust. It's a paradox because basically all your family and friends are talking about you, but they're talking about you because they want to save your life. So, yeah. And so and and they're and they're they're scared. They don't quite know what's going. Can I just ask when you talk to doctors, I, I, I don't want to like put words in your mouth, but I just wanted to just check this with you. Do you think when you were talking to them about what you were going through, you said that the GPs didn't always seem to understand or get it or pick it up. I'm, do you think that's in part, do you think women have a harder time being taken seriously than, than men when they come to doctors with concerns like that? Are you trying to earn brownie points from the girls' school? Yes, you oh. are. Are you <laughs> that schoolboy that I read about in the newspaper that started coming to school wearing um, sanitary towels on his backpack in his backpack and tampons to hand out to his lady friends? But basically, yes. I was saying to them, I wasn't saying that now because I didn't know them what I knew now, but I was, co- thank goodness my parents raised me. Yeah, I, I did like myself. You're right. And I think that has so much to do with it. I was going, I've not done anything wrong. I've not taken a load amount of drugs and been up for 14 days by choice. You know, I've, all I've done is what everyone else is doing. I had a baby and now I don't feel normal. I was saying... Um, someone's coming to get me something's coming to get me an ambulance they were going who who and I was going I don't know uh, uh, and maybe in my brain I was looking at them paranoid I don't know maybe an ambulance maybe the police officer maybe a psychiatric ward van I don't know something is coming to get me and they were going okay okay and then they said are you having um thoughts like uh are you having strange thoughts and I went strange thoughts like what they said uh you know thoughts of grandiose like do you believe you're god i was like no if i thought i was god i feel all right right now i don't feel like i'm god i feel like i am the lowest thing that's ever been created i feel like i'm not even worth being in you i can't even believe you're giving me my gp appointment my seven minutes because what i'm not worth that so sad women that can get women that have periods have mostly been experiencing fear shame pain wrapped in it since we were 12 years old you know it's part of our narrative you know and we just get on with it we have to go to school and go do PE and sports day and do our first kiss and go on stage and do all these other things go to work whilst experiencing that there is also the problem with the whole um hysteria you know that women are hysterical and drama queens and over the top plus that mixed with being a drama queen and being you know romantic and a poet and you know that idea that poets all drink black coffee and red wine and make make art out of our fucking periods like it's a stereotype, sensationalized stereotype. So it makes it really hard to say, I think someone's coming for me. And that's why the bravest thing a person can do is ask for help. Can you talk about what ha- happened? Because you, you eventually, you know, from having read your book and stuff, you, you go, you get taken to, you get taken sort of back to hospital, but this time without your child. And at one, on, on one level, that's like the point where you're getting help. On the other level, I know from what you've written about it that that is the point where you felt like you'd, you'd kind of failed. And going to get help, I, I just think, I wonder if you could talk about that because sometimes going actually going to get help is also feels like the point where you fail. Do you, I don't know if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do, I do, because... I do know what you mean because I feel like I now am that 
which I'm proud to be now, that person actually my friends can come to, which I probably wasn't that person entirely before because I didn't understand and I would always urge them to get to get help. And I know, you know, I was so scared taking that first antidepressant. I, when I first took a sleeping pill, it was like for a joke, like not a joke, but like for a fun thing to do, like with a friend. I was like, oh, should we get a really good night, sparry night's sleep and have a sleeping pill? I was like <coughs> 17 or something. And I remember I, and my mum had some Tylenol and I popped this blue pill. My friend just like popped it on the stairs and I I was scared of taking it on the stairs. So I was like, I don't want to fall asleep on the stairs. <laughs> like I literally thought it was going to be like pop, doop, asleep. Like obviously it wasn't. I probably had a terrible night's sleep. But, um, you know, taking that first antidepressant was literally like my whole family forcing it down my throat because I had such fear of medication. I don't even like taking a paracetamol. Um, so then to go to ask for help and say, and po- possibly that meaning linking your therapy, your recovery up with medication is really scary. And straight away, these horror stories come into your mind. I'm going to be addicted forever. I'm going to need a whole injection of heroin to ever let me feel calm again. And it, you get really scared very quickly. It's funny, isn't it? Because we're talking about alcohol just then, but it never crosses your mind when you have your first beer. Before I know it, I could be knocking back 60 bottles of JD every single day, you know. But here we go. I'm just going to take this Stella and see what happens. <clears throat> it's just mad how that this the, and you know how dangerous alcohol can be. It's really anyway. So yeah, I got hospitalised in um, general psych. This is again another whole argument. Well, not an argument, but a discussion that I have with a lot with the charity that I work with, Action on Postpartum Psychosis, but also with my partner and my family. You know, they're mother and baby units are really where I should have probably gone and then I would have not maybe felt quite so scared because I would have I had physical symptoms going on as well I had you know boobs that were wanting to feed something or not you know I now found out that my boobs where they went really flat like pancakes like really quickly and that is a really rare hormonal effect which basically means that my body sort of thought my baby had died and they were like flat but I didn't know this I was still making milk though but I was I didn't have a pump or anything so I was quite literally I was like pushing putting milk into the sink you know into the bath I was bleeding I um I was scared I was in general psych so I was surrounded with you know people with all sorts of different um illnesses you know uh, with addiction or personality disorder bipolar schizophrenia um so I had no idea where or how I how why I was there how long I would be there for nobody to actually explain some people would say you've got postnatal depression some people would say you've had psychosis but my illness was never really diagnosed to me so I just thought I was you know broken I guess then all day every day I had to go to um classes from nine in the morning till five o'clock at night I just had crumbs I love it that you always say crumbs so I had I had um I'd only just come down from psychosis and then going to those which honestly I just was thinking what I mean now I'd quite like to go back and actually do those that course because I'd be like that'd be quite sick but at the time or then it was like being back in school again I realized very quickly oh there's groups some people have been here for six months and they've got friendships and then these speak people speak don't hang out with that one because she's you know cooking up conspiracies and she's telling the nurses and then and then before I know it I'd be bleeding onto my chair because time would just lapse and I'd soaked through my pad and how do I explain to people I've just had a baby and you it's just the most but you know what, Tim? I friggin' needed it. I, I not just I needed that desperately. I needed this in my life. It's this shake up, this like 
plug-in that I've had to real world you know I used to be scared of the monsters under the bed and I loved life and now I've seen the monsters for what they really are and I love life even more you know it's helped me so much and the first thing you feel when you be hospitalized is relief because you don't have to try anymore you don't have to pretend you don't have to deal with the shame you don't have to go to play, play group and be like everything's okay you'll be like you know what this has got bigger than I can deal with anymore I've really tried and it's not helped now someone needs to help me I think I understand what you're getting at but I wondered if you could reflect on it because to say you, you when you said I, I I needed this was the phrase you used and that that seems on the face of it quite an extraordinary thing to to have felt at the end of it and um I I believe you and I would just wonder if you could reflect on that and unpack it sure um I needed this I mean I'm thinking about that moment afterwards where I was sitting on that that chair they were like these lime green kind of spongy chairs and I had this is a strange moment actually in this hospital where I'd reached my conspiracies kind of I I, when I first went to hospital I they gave me a really amazing whatever it was that's the beauty of hospitals is they can give you medication they would never normally let you go home with in real life they gave me and because I'm a drug virgin as you know I took to that medication like an absolute little princess (laughs) and slept wonderfully and I was miles better after some good sleep and I really improved and all my family were like phew I just should just say that even though I thought I had done everything terrible in the world that ever existed which is why the book is called what have I done I actually hadn't done anything you know everything was just internalized I had no negative feelings really towards Jet but I guess the problem was I just had numbness towards him I felt nothing towards him which again is the over it you know the expectation put on you mums is that you will feel this movie like overwhelming feeling of love when you meet them you know oh my god like straight away in love when actually it is a stranger and you are feeling like you've been turned inside out so took to the medication very well um but then within a week you know I the conspiracies climbed up higher and it's like an anti-nature it's a weird feeling to have you know, I woke up in a psychiatric ward on Mother's Day, like my first Mother's Day without my baby. So that is an unusual feeling that is going to give responses to you that, you know, my gait had changed. My physically, my the way I walked changed. The way I carried myself changed. I'd have powerful moments too, don't get me wrong, in my psychosis where I thought I was like Villanelle from um, Killing Eve walking around, bossing it around the corridors, thinking I was like this when I was wearing like cupcake socks and like... <laughs> That, that is the grandiosity that the GP was talking about. <laughs> exactly. Which apparently, I only learned recently, is a state, you'll probably like this, which apparently we have that when for tribal, you know, if someone was to try, back in the way back, if someone was to invade our camp, we could believe big fit fears to, and it would momentarily buy us time. It would scare, you know, shriek our, the, our opponents, our, you know, our, if we sense danger we could be like i'm god and i you know i believe this it's quite a clever way of our brain responding Mm. so but it's not because i write children's books tim that i managed to think that i was villanelle you know this is not because i've got a big imagination this is i go i guess it's uh survive you know some sort of instinct anyway but it wasn't good i didn't have any euphoria like some people have anyway i had this moment where i was was towards the end where i started thinking i've got to get out of hospital i've got to become this a-grade student attend every class not be late they had a policy at the hospital where if you were late you wouldn't be allowed back in 
but I was leaking on the chair and I was like what do I do here because then they'll put me down as missing a class that will look like I'm not performing you know like I'm not learning on why I was putting this pressure on myself I guess this is all to do with the fact of you know in the labor <clears throat> I was such a passenger you know I was like making sure everyone else was okay have you eaten enough have you rested enough you know this is not the time for me to be a backseat person but anyway I had to leave because I was bleeding and um, went to the toilet and um, was trying to make this imaginary pad out of all this tissue literally like I was back being 12 again and I just remember looking up in these toilets um, at the hospital and just going I don't know what this is I don't know who this is or what this is if this is what I don't know if I'm in a game or a tv program or Darren Brown or Truman Show but you've made your point now you've made your point I hear it I hear whatever you're trying to do and I and I really do believe like it wasn't a god thing it wasn't spiritual it wasn't that but that's when I just promised that I was going to learn from this and it's not been linear you know it's not been easy there's been times when I've been set back you know my sleep will throw me off again and or you know I came off the um olanzapine the um heavy antipsychotic and had like a little party in my mind for my friends and stuff not in my mind from then that way but in my brain I was like we're gonna have a party and then I went straight back on them again you know I'm, I'm off them now but that doesn't mean to say I, my whole attitude towards medication has changed I'm so grateful that I know they exist that spider-man web exists if I need to fall again that hammock is there for me and changing that attitude that resentment that idea of failure as you say that some people do have when they first go which I get oh I'm now more medication no one meets you at the end because I've been there when you come off medication with a bouquet and a medal around your neck and goes you did it you did it you know, you don't get a bronze for needing help. It doesn't happen like that. And um, I realised then that that was that strong woman that you kind of think you want to be when you want to be like Scary Spice because you love the Spice Girls so much. And that's your dream person is to be like Mel B. It's like, no, this is the actual. Now I am that right. It's really fucking cool to have got through what I have got through, but also to be grateful for it I I think that's the biggest lesson I have there you know the day my book came out I was like I'm walking down the aisle with this thing now it's like it's me and you now like that this thing I hold it close and when people say it's not you it's the illness it's not which everyone always says I'm like no no this is me of course it's me it's another part of me and instead of resenting it and being angry at it I just hold it close. I say, okay, I need to stick with you because I believe there is some part of that that was instinctively, you know, people say people with mental illness are scary. No, no, they're scared. You know, I I was absolutely petrified. So I hold that person closer. And, you know, even if it was me that got me into that mess, it was me. I also got myself out of it. So. Yeah, you did. And I think it's just it's i i really appreciate your talking to me about it laura because and i think especially that like unhelpful narrative that i hear in all sorts of ways where people talk about the link between mental illness and creativity and i you know they go well that's you know this is probably your artistic temperament i've had it said to me as well and i'm just like you know what i don't I, I doubt that you got many books written while in the kind of grip of psychosis. It's not. It's not helpful. It's not helpful. It's, it don't, 
it doesn't help it doesn't help you meet deadlines or have conversations with your agent no it really doesn't it uh, you know and I, you, yes i had a i was signed up with ymcaa to do a big campaign about about this sort of stuff as i was unwell my book about um body positivity was also coming out you know on on international women's day which was two days before i woke up in a psychiatric ward on mother's day hugo's birthday my sister's birthday i was completely paralyzed i was catatonic like you would not have been able to get why would i choose that you know also depression and anxiety sorry it ain't sexy it might look like that in the films when you're in that film the craft and you've got your eyeliner on but in reality it's no and so having to piece back my relationship with my partner with my friends feeling like i actually can say again you've bought the wrong biscuits because i've asked for so much you know getting us back to that level where I'm not a burden and it's not all tiptoeing around me and the eggshells and will she be okay with that or someone else watching me whilst I'm holding Jet in case I do something to him. Fly kicking the door down because everyone thinks I'm secretly committing suicide when I'm just trying to change my pad. It's just like having all that go and get back to normality again, it just comes back because this the truth is the illness is treatable and recovery is 100% possible. I was going maybe other people, maybe other people, but not me. I'm too far gone. I'm not, I'm too far gone. I just, I'm so grateful. And that's the reward. Sorry. It's like, do you think now with lockdown, do you think I care? Like being locked down in real life, being locked down in your head. Oh my God, this lockdown is a doddle compared to being locked down in your mind. I I think, I, I thanks. It's just so good. I mean, it's, I'm so glad that you've, got there Laura and I'm so glad that you've been able to find those things because I think I I've had you know so many times where I just thought exact you're articulating so much stuff that I've had almost exactly in my head of like this this other people maybe but not me and sometimes taking a tiny little bit of pride in that if I'm totally honest occasionally going well well doctor you know you may have been able to help other people but not old medical miracle Timmy C here (laughs) like I've got I've got I've got super anxiety. You are not going to make me happy. You're going to... Hey, but it's a, this is it. This is it. You know, especially, okay, that's interesting because when you think you'd be, a, you know, to be the idea of being a children's author, it was like a sick joke. It's like, okay, I need to be like Mary Poppins and Beatrix Potter and all these ridiculous things. And But you know how I dress. Like I want to wear bright colours and I want to wear bright lipstick and be all the social butterfly. That, as you say, it doesn't add up. So it was like falling to my knees in that, oh my god that humble pie that I had to force down like crashing that hard um knowing that life isn't this you know rose tinted world and all the rest of it but now being well again and still seeing the world like that I'm like oh that is my normal state but that was a hard lesson to learn but uh it's all about how you deal with it so it doesn't work for everybody but CBT is my number one boyfriend finding CBT and that has helped me in other things that I had before this you know just little things it's just helped me learn to learn to live because one one of the main things I got I was left with after this was things I'd never thought I'd have to worry about intrusive thoughts for example um insomnia things I'd never had problems with before and realizing oh you and you don't come away from something like that scot-free but I I had a uh I got a referral to speak to the leading psychiatrist in my illness. He, Dr. Ian Jones, he he treats my uh, um, what's it called? Uh, learns about what's the word? Studies my illness and bipolar disorder, and I had all these. I was so excited to get to speak to him. You know, he's in Wales, so we spoke on um, Skype, 
and I had all these questions to ask him you know why me was it because I couldn't look after my plants and was it because I'm a bad friend or a bad person or a creative all these things and he just was like no it just wasn't your day it just wasn't your day and then I was like oh and all my questions suddenly just I was like oh 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 and he was like just see it like you've been hit by a car and suddenly I was like and that's the problem. That's why we have to understand, give, it, give mental health, mental illness this space. Because if I was hit by a car, everyone would go, don't do anything. Lie down. You've been hit by a car. Take as long as you need. Fix your bones. Like, what do you need? Whereas when you've had, had this, it's like, okay, come on. A baby really needs you now. Pull it together now. Come on. Come on. Like, this isn't really the time to be making a fuss, Laura. Come on. That's where the problem is, is the space. The shame and the guilt is just as big as the illness itself, if not bigger. And once we let go of that, which does take work, it's years of work, the guilt, the shame, the fear, that will, once you let that go, that's when you start to recover. I think you're right. And I, I, but I think I also do feel that, like you said, why me? And the reason I just, I, I just want to like touch on this just before we finish is like a final thing is, well, I put out a, put an online, um, I put out a little uh, questionnaire for people who've had anxiety and I asked them at the end of it, like, if, have you got any questions that, about anxiety? What's the number one question that you'd like answered? And, and, and the number, the one that came up again and again was just like, why, why me? Um, and I think one of the things I wonder about is it like that self blame can seem perverse from the outside. Like, why would you, why would Laura go through all this and then go, what did I do wrong to bring this on myself? And, and, and it might also seem perverse that I suspect when you were told you just, it just wasn't your day, that a tiny part of you was disappointed by that answer because if it was your fault, and this is what people don't understand, if it was your fault, then no matter how self-blame that that seems, then you can have complete control over doing the things to make sure you never go through a difficult thing a day again. And a, a, a really terrifying thing to kind of get one's head around is that sometimes bad things happen to good people and there's nothing they could have done to stop it. And that is that's a really hard thing to accept and 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 self-blame sometimes it feels like the safe place to hide i have different thoughts my philosophy is different to what you're saying and i think before i had had this and done my that's why i'm grateful for it because i have learned so much from it um so first of all that wouldn't make me feel better because I've had to spend a lot of time learning about self-compassion, which is not going, oh, you deserve a gin and tonic, girlfriend. It's being like holding myself, as I say, in that way, not pretending this didn't happen, not pushing it away, not being angry at it or mad at it or upset that I couldn't be with my child and that other people were sending me photographs of my baby or taking him out of my hands and passing him round. Not angry at the midwives that didn't diagnose this stuff, letting all of that anger and rage go, that they didn't notice that he was small or that he was dying or that I could have nearly died and, and that didn't, didn't spot my psychosis, just bringing it all in closer. If I was told that it was my fault, I also... And, it's out of my control and it's really naive of me to think that I could have controlled it in the future again because as you say bad things do happen plus this is going really really rational now but there's no such thing as good or bad anyway I'm not a good person you know I don't deserve a good thing or a bad thing 
I'm just a human and that's it and it's all all we can do is try and increase our tolerance levels of what we can actually cope with and endure um and what we do we say we're valuable human beings with strengths and weaknesses and that's literally it um and I don't deserve anything you know there's that doesn't work like that and I have to think like that otherwise this is the really hard thing I know I'm speaking stoic really stoically but um self-pity is literally getting on the euro starter depression like if you think one ounce of why me I used to think why me all the time I've worked so hard I've done this I've done that I'm such a you know all this I you might as well just literally go yep please take me to depression because why you why anyone why does anything happen to anybody good things bad things why and and why is probably one of the most useless questions you could ever ask why me it just wasn't your day okay that's my lot then i better try and live with this oh laurie so you you just done amazingly i'm just so you're just do yeah thank you so much laura for talking to me about it like i just really appreciate i really appreciate your honesty i really appreciate you know you're just like being vulnerable with it um i just think you know in terms of that you talked about building you know in life all you can do is like build your resilience and but i do think one of the things that helps people build resilience and their ability to be self-compassionate with themselves is hearing other people being able to talk model that kind of honesty and vulnerability and resilience and just modeling our being able as a community and as human beings to talk about these things with each other i think it takes away some of the fear i think it takes away some of the shame this platform for people to that could be saving people's lives and especially in this actually this dark one of the great things that's come from this time this lockdown this pandemic is people that wouldn't normally be able to feel like you know i'm, I'm doing all this book stuff that i would have normally done that we would have been in the palladium i'm so glad that i didn't have to be on tour you know in a service station in reading you know on my own at a travel lodge you know drinking a little freaking tea out of a polystyrene cup and I should be at home with when I can have these discussions that you're creating platforms for then go away and be with my son and be with my partner and feel supported and held you're providing that but also with you speaking of sharing what you're doing me sharing what I'm doing you're also um giving yourself a passport a currency and permission to go I'm not doing this podcast but I feel fucked in the head so I need a break yeah so that's why rather than scurrying around trying to keep it all together you're knocking down that fourth wall and that's straight away it's like oh in that it's like oh shit like the podcast person isn't even okay we're all now allowed to not be okay so thank you that's amazing to do that oh well you're welcome laura and thank you so nice to have been able to catch up with you and I'm, I'm sorry i left it so long but i'm really glad that we talked today um so and, and just to check if like people want to um check out you know go and find your work and, and, and read your books obviously they can just um google laura dockrell but is there anywhere online where they can go and find your your stuff so instagram is laura lee dockrell because that's what my real name actually is it's like laura lee like a name like that laura lee dockrell or laura dockrell on twitter cool thank you i'll put links to those in the uh show notes thank you and to everybody listening thank you for listening and i hope you have a wonderful week of writing